where the miracle of pregnancy meets the reality of your changing body, where taking care of our kids meets taking care of ourselves, and where the daily frustrations of feeding a family meet establishing lifelong healthy habits. This is The Messy Intersection. Welcome back to The Messy Intersection. I'm your host, Diana, and I'm a registered dietitian, but I'm also a mom and a person who has experienced two pregnancies. Today's topic is about pregnancy and nutrition. But unlike a lot of the other resources that are going to tell you, you know, these are the best snacks for pregnancy and get this many grams of protein and this much iron, my guest Andrea and I are going to be talking about what all those messages do to us and how we can navigate them basically without going crazy. You know, when I counsel families about their children's nutrition, I always put one hand up near my chin and I say, your child's nutrition is here. But then I put my other hand up by my eyes and I say, but your child's relationship with food is up here. And we're always going to prioritize your child's relationship with food over his or her nutrition. Because when we do the reverse and make nutrition the highest priority, that's actually when we get into trouble and may actually begin to engage in behaviors that are not in the best interest of the child's health and might compromise their relationship with food. And I think that's actually true for anyone's health, any adult, pregnant or not. But it's certainly something that's really important to begin to recognize when you're pregnant for your own health and and then later for the way in which you'll approach feeding your kids down the line. But it's not always easy, especially with all the messages we get left and right. And that's what Andrea and I are here to talk about today. This is actually the last pre-COVID episode that I recorded. So when Andrea talks about being 27 weeks pregnant, just know that she has a healthy little baby boy now. So my guest today is Andrea Paul. Andrea is a registered dietitian in private practice, seeing clients through telehealth and helping people with a range of things, including general health, new diagnoses, eating disorders, and chronic dieting recovery. She is also a podcast host. Her show is called Food Confidence, which we'll talk about. And she's now a mom to an eight-month-old and navigating parenting for the first time in a pandemic along with her spouse. As always, this interview is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. And the views I express are my personal opinions and do not represent the views of my clients or employers. Let's hear from Andrea. Welcome, Andrea, to The Messy Intersection. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me, Dana. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Yeah. So Andrea is pregnant with her first baby. And what I wanted to talk to her about today is nutrition during pregnancy, but not really in the sense of like, make sure you get this many grams of protein and this much iron, but more like navigating all of the messages that we get about what we should eat during our pregnancies and how to even balance that when we don't feel like eating anything that's, you know, quote unquote, nutritious. So Andrea, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your pregnancy, the kind of work you do? Absolutely. Okay. So I'm Andrea Paul. I am a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and licensed dietitian. So yeah, I am pregnant with my first child. I am 27 weeks, week pregnant today as we speak. So I'm in my last week of my second trimester. So I start kind of the last leg of the race next week, which is exciting. Kind of felt like it would never get here, right? It's so, it felt very slow going at the, at the beginning. It still feels kind of slow going, you know, takes almost a, almost a year, better part of a year to grow a human being. So, but yeah, so I'm feeling 
pretty pretty well fighting off a bit of a cold right now which and this is kind of one of the fun things about being pregnant is that your immune system is not necessarily as strong as it usually is and Mm -hmm. the drugs that you can take to counteract that are a little bit limited so just doing a lot of fluids but yeah I feel pregnancy wise I feel like I've been incredibly fortunate with my pregnancy everything's kind of been trucking along as it should be, as you know, according to my providers. In my first trimester, of course, I had the some of the to be expected, you know, nausea and food aversions and a lot of fatigue, which was mm-hmm. which was funny, you know, kind of taking extra breaks at work and sitting. I, you know, I remember sitting in my office, like almost in tears and in fatigue, and just like I can't face. I can't face the world today. I'm too tired. Yeah. And that feeling of like, I literally can't get off the couch after, after dinner or like, after, you know, it, at the end of the day, like I cannot get off the couch. It's just impossible. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, like I said, I think I've been, I'm very lucky with my pregnancy. I haven't had a lot of, I haven't had any like worries so far other than the worries that just I've made up in my own brain. <laughs> Those are real. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so yeah, we'll kind of dig more into that, I guess, in our chat today yeah. about navigating, you know, what to eat during pregnancy or what that's how, you know, how how we navigate that, right? When we have all the messages and advice coming from various angles in our life. Yeah, yeah. So let's um like go back to around the time that you first found out you were pregnant and, you know, or, or maybe even, you know, before that, were you, how were you navigating messages about preconception nutrition? Because I know, at least for me, you know, getting pregnant is a crapshoot. <laughs> and when we feel like um, we want to control it as much as we can, a lot of times we feel like, well, if I could at least get perfect nutrition, then I would know that I was at least doing that, you know, but it's really easy to stress ourselves out about that as well. Yeah, definitely. I think that was part of my experience as well is like, you know, knowing that we were trying to get pregnant, you know, kind of the best thing I think I did, or maybe the only thing that I I really focused on was, you know, starting off taking a prenatal multivitamin, which that's not something that I had done previously when, when I wasn't trying to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but certainly like that process can be, can add a lot of stress, right? Like, so for me, I felt like I was first like learning about, I was kind of learning about my reproductive system in a whole different way when I was, when we were trying and um, fortunate that we didn't, didn't have any, you know, again, red flags or, or issues with that for the most part, but I definitely did. I, de- I definitely think I stressed myself out a little bit more than I probably needed to. Of course, I say like, you know, when you finally, you know, when you finally relax, like that's kind of when it typically happens, which is the case for some people, but obviously not for everybody. Like you said, getting pregnant can be kind of a crapshoot and a stressful time for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. When I, <laughs> so, you know, maybe a funny anecdote, but my first reaction when I found out I was pregnant was, I'm too young for this. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not old enough to be, to be a mom. I'm 31 and I've been pre- married for four years. <laughs> and so, you know, that was kind of my first reaction. It was just kind of a little bit of disbelief, like, oh, this is really happening for real. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of taking that in stride. I didn't have, like, I know friends of mine have 
mentioned that they've had symptoms before they actually, you know, found out for real that they were, or for sure that they were pregnant, like having some nausea or like, you know, some different symptoms. And I didn't really have any, any symptoms that I can remember other than acne, honestly, Mm. (laughs) that was indicative of that, of, of something changing in my body. And then, you know, after, you know, the, the positive tests came through, that's kind of like week, I guess like six to nine is kind of when I started having some of those early pregnancy side effects. So again, some nausea, not necessarily, you know, I call it morning sickness, but it's certainly not just during the morning time. Nausea, food aversions, and fatigue. So those are kind of my th- my three big ones. So navigating kind of that that nausea, I had, I had. I have friends that have previously been pregnant, and so I kind of got their lists of foods that were their saving graces during that first trimester. So a lot of foods like, you know, Cheerios or, or cold cereal, toast, cheese and crackers, um, bagels and cream cheese. So a lot of those kind of more gentle, starchy, carbohydrate-rich foods that really help settle their stomach. From my providers, they had recommended that you know, eating regularly and like kind of those small frequent meals and having more protein based foods, which is kind of, I guess, a contrast of what the advice I was getting from my friends, you know, so the people who had recently been through a pregnancy found that maybe the starchier foods had been helpful to them. Whereas the providers were saying, no, you know, protein foods are kind of what helps. So I kind of felt like, you know, a mix of those things were helpful Certainly one of the things that I did find was true for me is that just not letting my stomach get empty for too long. So having eating more frequently and eating smaller amounts of food. So that's kind of one of the things that I was told that brings on the nausea is just having an empty stomach. So I had, you know, a container of nuts by my bedside and I would grab a handful of nuts before I even stepped out of bed in the morning. And that just helped to kind of get something in my, in my system and ward off the early, early morning nausea. I don't know if that was your experience as well, Diana. It was, yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's something that's so challenging about early pregnancy is that the best solution, at least in my case, in your case, for warding off the nausea was to eat something when you absolutely do not feel like eating anything. And it kind of goes against what we both practice as intuitive eating practitioners to, you know, honor your hunger and eat what, you know, sounds good to you. But, you know, within within intuitive eating, there's also a level of making sure that you're providing for yourself and, yeah. you know, you're taking care of yourself. You're looking forward for the next couple hours to think about what your body is going to need. Yeah, definitely. Within, like you said, being intuitive eating practitioners, you know, the whole eating when you're hungry and kind of honoring your cravings is really difficult when you have no hunger cues and not absolutely nothing sounds good. So yeah, it becomes kind of this idea of eating for self-care and knowing that you do need to eat and you do need calories because you're, you know, not only taking care of yourself, but you're trying to, you know, grow another person now. So that is hard, you know, difficult for a lot of people to navigate. I think it definitely goes beyond pregnancy too, is that, you know, sometimes we don't have those hunger cues, like whether it's recovering from a cold or whatever the case is, 
you know, where our hunger cues are maybe blunted or just not there, you know, we, we know we still need to eat. So I'm really grateful that I have the knowledge of intuitive eating and kind of my relationship with food going into pregnancy that I knew that, you know, I do need to nourish myself and whatever way kind of that plays out is going to be okay. So that's kind of, a re- that was a reassurance. Yeah. So, you know, something I run into often is, you know, women are just trying to navigate this, trying to, you know, ward off the nausea and just keep themselves full to whatever degree they can. And then they worry that their baby is going to be made out of crackers and bagels. (laughs) And we get a lot of messages about you need this much folate and this much, you know, all the different vitamins, which is true. Like as as dietitians, you and I can both say that that's true. And it just adds another layer of guilt to us in thinking, you know, are we really setting our babies up to be as healthy as possible? And should we be choking down, I don't know, kale smoothies or something, you know, to, to make sure our babies get that nutrition? What has been your experience with that? Yeah, certainly, I think you know, the, I, one of the first few comments I got from other people was around, well, she's a dietitian, so I'm sure she's going to be eating super, super healthy. You know, in my early days as a dietitian, you know, thinking, you know, when I would think forward to being pregnant and when that time eventually came, I did picture myself being like, okay, this is, that would be the time that I'm going to pay a lot of attention to making sure that I get really high quality food and a lot of vegetables. And because you, you know, everybody wants the best for their children, whether they're inside you growing still or outside you. That's why, you know, I am very grateful that I found intuitive eating before getting pregnant, because I think, you know, it's such an, an anxiety inducing time to begin with. And then you get all of the outside advice, whether that's from healthcare practitioners or friends or family or the internet. So I think, you know, one of the best things that people who are pregnant or trying to get pregnant or, you know, lifelong really is to kind of hopefully rid themselves of some of those shoulds and those rules around food. And, you know, when you're pregnant, you know, that's the reason that the prenatal vitamin is so essential, right? It covers your bases, you know, it gives you the right amount of folate and iron, hopefully. And, you know, if we can get that down on a regular basis, then at least we know we're covered for those really, really essential nutrients. And then I think just, especially in that first trimester, just doing your best to get down what you can. I mean, the most important thing is that you get enough energy, enough calories to begin with, and then hopefully find some things that don't make your stomach turn. You know, for me, for example, like I found that cold, cold things were really, really helpful. So things that, you know, when you think of nausea, you know, think of things with low odors. So cold things tend to tend to settle well. So I ate a lot of popsicles and that, you know, gave me fluids and a lot of fruit smoothies. So that that was kind of like a nice reassurance for me that, you know, I was getting some, some produce in there, (laughs) some some berries and some yogurt. And so I was, I knew that I was giving myself, you know, something that had, you know, some food value to it. But of course, then I, you know, all foods have all foods have value. So I really focused on just getting enough during the day. And, and what kind of didn't, didn't sound terrible. I will say that, you know, probably a few weeks into the 
first trimester, like nausea, food aversions, my husband was like, I need some vegetables. We haven't had any vegetables. <laughs> so he was very, you know, he was very supportive and like would kind of go along with whatever my food aversions of the day were. Mm-hmm. But he n- noticed that, that, you know, we weren't having a lot of vegetables, which, you know, I think is pretty normal for from what I've heard from other people too, is just like, you do not crave those. I was not craving Brussels sprouts. I don't eat kale on a regular basis anyway, so I was certainly not craving kale. So. Yeah, one thing, I, I love the tip about smoothies, and I definitely relied on that uh, myself when I was pregnant, if and when I had the energy to make one. <laughs> Although at the time I lived in New York where there's like a bodega or a smoothie shop on every corner. So as long as I was willing to shell out for it, that helped. <laughs> but um, one thing that I also tell women often, which applies to pregnancy, but it also applies once you uh, are potentially working with a, a picky child, is that um fruit has a lot of the same nutrition as vegetables. You know, people worry about the sugar and I generally counsel them not to worry about it at all. But, you know, there's a handful of nutrients that vegetables might have, you know, a higher content of, but, you know, that is why we take our prenatal vitamin and uh, a lot of those other things come through. Uh, in fruit, which can be, you know, that cold kind of refreshing popsicles or smoothies or things like that, you know, if if that's your jam. I mean, one thing right. that I started getting averse to in, in my first pregnancy was dairy products. So there went the yogurts, there went <laughs> the milk, you know. Yeah, isn't that so interesting, too, that everyone has is averse is like, you know, averse to different foods at different times. So my first trimester, I was all about dairy. And I'm a normal, like I love dairy to begin with. But I went through, gosh, so much yogurt, so much cottage cheese, so much milk. I think the protein helped my stomach in a lot of cases. And now as I'm in my second trimester, carbohydrate rich foods are, are more my jam. Although like I've come out of the food aversion. So I I'm able, able to eat kind of like more of our regular kind of food stuff. So, you know, more, a few more vegetables in there, but certainly, and oh man, when the appetite came back, that was just like, so, so nice as a, somebody who loves to eat and really enjoys, you know, cooking and putting things together that are yummy and satisfying and, and nourishing, not having an appetite and not wanting anything really sucked <laughs> to put it yeah. So did you find at that point, were you getting body signals of things that you think you might have been missing during your nausea, your time of nausea? One of my providers had said that, you know, protein was really important. I did feel like I, I craved more protein than normal. So, you know, if we had a piece of meat for dinner, you know, I'm not a huge meat eater to begin with. Like, you know, I'm omnivorous. I'm an omnivore like I know you are as well. But, you know, that wasn't kind of like my main, I, I just found myself kind of eating more of that than I typically would and, and craving that more than I typically would. And so I'm not sure if that's just because it settled a little bit easier or that my body really wanted more protein at that point. But I would think that that's, that's the case. You know, I just, without kind of managing it, I was like, oh, that that's more than I would typically eat, you know, as a non-pregnant me. So just in terms of the amount of like one kind of nutrient over another. So yeah, I think, you know, my balance of things shifted a little bit. Yeah, I think in general, in terms of um, listening to our body signals, it's 
just a lot easier to tune into those signals regarding the macronutrients. We're rarely sitting down for a meal. I sure would like a meal that's high in zinc today. (laughs) Like we don't really know that. I think I think to a degree sometimes it happens with iron, but you know there's there's a handful of nutrients that really just brand new research is coming out all the time about the importance of, you know, choline or DHA in pregnancy. And those are not really things that we're able to just like flip a switch and tune into. So to a degree, it helps to know, you know, okay, so these are the foods that are, you know, highest in those, you know, if I, if I am out shopping, maybe I'll pick up the DHA fortified eggs or something like Mm -hmm. that. But that's another thing we can really just get stressed out over if, you know, I remember, because, you know, the, the tiny fish like sardines are supposed to be so great for, you know, uh, the omega threes. <laughs> and it early when I was trying to conceive, I was like, OK, got to have the sardines for lunch. And like I did it for like two days. And then I was like, ah, <laughs> I don't want this anymore. And, you know, it's I think, you know, I'm glad I wasn't making myself like choke it down. You know, although, you know, I I have worked with women who get really caught up in the messaging surrounding like they have to have this many things or even like grams of protein. Like I am a registered dietitian who works with pregnant women. And off the top of my head, I could not even tell you like exactly how many grams of protein you need. I'm sure there is a recommendation out there, but I honestly think it's worse for women to be writing down like every gram of protein they got and worried at the end of the day that they didn't get enough. And so what I work with women on instead is, you know, what is your body telling you it needs? You know, if are you if you're craving ice cream, you know what? There's a lot of good nutrition in there actually. But that's not, you know, that's not the message that a lot of pregnant women are getting, I don't think. Certainly, most of the messages about food and pregnancy are all about what you can't eat. Um, What has been your experience with that? You just worry about more things, I think. So I think, you know, certainly I've been maybe more cautious with with food than I, you know, I might be down the line or in a couple of years that, you know, making sure that my eggs are fully cooked and that... You know, I am avoiding the foods that, you know, double checking that I can have certain foods that they're safe for pregnancy. Although, you know, there is <laughs> there is a certain amount of like restriction, restrictive mindset with that, sure. that comes, you know, when you can't have like, I'm not, you know, an avid wine drinker. But the second I found out I was pregnant, like, every person who had wine in their cart, I was like, Oh, man, I'm not, I could really like nine in the morning. Oh, man, I really wish I could have a glass of wine. But and I guess like you you can to a certain extent. But you know, sure. I think there's just a lot more, you know, certainly more cautious, I think just because yeah. this is my first one. I don't know if that's what you were trying to get at. Well, (laughs) yeah, in general, I mean, I think it's kind of a bummer that you might be at like, say a holiday party or something and you see a cheese dip and you're like, cool, cheese dip looks great. And maybe you've just come off the nausea and you're so excited that your appetite is back. And it could either come from yourself being like, oh, shoot, is that cheese pasteurized? I don't know. Right. Should I find the host? Should I ask? Do I want to be annoying? Or... And, and, you know, ultimately the, the reason that women are not supposed to have unpasteurized cheese when they're pregnant is that they are at a higher risk of contracting a uh, foodborne illness that might be present in there. But, you know, it's kind of a numbers game, you know, if mm. the cheese is contaminated and if your immune system is lowered and then maybe, you know, so it might be like a one in 10,000 risk. Uh, nobody quote me on that, but, you know, still. Right. But then there's also on the flip side, you might say, oh, cheese dip, I'm going to have that. 
And then somebody else swoops in and goes, wait, you're pregnant. You know, you don't know if it's pasteurized. <laughs> There's, you know, sort of the preachy element. Right. Well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think like from my experience, like, you know, I just, you check over the labels on, you know, feta cheese, for example. Mm -hmm. So feta cheese is something that I was told to avoid, but I think again, just for that pasteurization, you mm -hmm. know, the reason is pasteurization and I haven't found any feta cheese in Portland, Maine, at least that's unpasteurized. So kind of, you know, just doing a little bit of looking at the label and so you know, that your diet can be as expansive as, as it can be so that you are avoiding things that you do actually need to avoid, but not absolutely everything, you know, just because it's feta cheese or a fresh cheese doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be dangerous. And I think that this is uh, generalizable to the U.S. population, at least, is that most grocery store cheeses that you would just pick up, you know, your cheddar or whatever, even feta are pasteurized in the U.S. And when you would really want to start looking at the label is if you're looking at some kind of fancy French cheese or something imported because right. abroad they don't um, pay, uh, they, they don't prioritize pasteurization quite as much as we do. Um, but my understanding is that they don't, you know, reprimand pregnant women quite as much either. Yeah. So interesting how those things, like I've even heard of places like, you know, Italy or, and France, like, you know, pregnant women who are drinking a glass of wine at night is, is very normal. Yeah. Whereas here it's, you know, I think anybody that I know who was seen drinking even like a small glass of wine, if they are pregnant would probably, you know, get a side eye. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think that that just speaks to a larger issue of diet culture in the United States yeah. <laughs> versus other, versus other countries. And also, you know, how we feel, like we are able to comment on other people's diets, mm -hmm. pregnant or not, because we all know what's best, quote unquote. <laughs> and I also find it interesting, like I have had a lot of questions about like if I've been having pregnancy cravings and things like that. And I really, to be honest, I don't think I've had any anything that I would necessarily qualify as a, as a craving. You know, I, I, I can identify now that I'm in my second trimester things that actually I want to eat that are that, you know, like this sounds good, but I, I, it's not, I haven't had any intense cravings. And part of me wonders if kind of the concept of pregnancy cravings or cravings that are, feel very, very intense when you're pregnant is maybe a product of, you know, often people, especially women don't allow themselves like to have the things that they want. And then when they get pregnant, it's like, you're, you're very much encouraged to like, this is absolutely not the time to diet. Like looking in my, you know, ninth edition of what to expect when you're expecting, there's multiple pages on like, you know, this is not the time to diet. This is the time to, you know, nourish your body as best as you can and to nourish your growing baby. And so part of me wonders if, you know, the craving is part of, the cravings that are part of diet culture that we're finally allowing ourselves to, you know, have that freedom and that permission to eat what we truly want. And then it's in, it's manifesting in these more intense cravings. What are your, what are your thoughts? You know, I, I think that's fascinating. I haven't framed it myself. I haven't framed it like that myself, but I do think it's really fascinating. You know, often when I am working with a pregnant woman or a woman who 
more often it's a woman who has already had her baby. She'll say, you know, when I was pregnant, that was when, you know, I knew I wasn't supposed to be restricting my food. So that's when I was just actually most comfortable making uh, nutritious choices. And I find that it's sort of rewinding back to that time helps them tap into their ability to be an intuitive eater um, Mm -hmm. because it wasn't all about their waistlines or, you know, whether a certain food was, you know, whether gluten is evil or something like that. So yeah, if, you know, if a woman is able to do that, is able to sort of tap into her ability to be an intuitive eater. And, you know, she just really always wanted ice cream and didn't really let herself have it most times. I think there's something there. I don't think that explains like, you know, the pickles with whipped cream (laughs) on them or whatever, which I I never had. But I would love to see that explored further, you know, in research or something like that. Right. I think it's really interesting. Yeah. But I think I think like you had mentioned before, like we, there are going to be times that our bodies are craving more of this kind of, you know, macronutrient or more of this kind of, mic- you know, maybe micronutrient, like you had said, iron. So I wonder if that was kind of like my my meat craving during the first trimester is like I, I needed more protein and I also needed more iron because I was building all that blood. <laughs> you know, what's interesting on the subject of meat. So prior to getting pregnant with my oldest kid, I, I, I do believe I've always been an intuitive eater, but I did get kind of sucked into what is it called? The, the Michael pollinization of <laughs> our food system in, in really believing that, you know, local and organic meat was not only best for me, but best for the planet. And I definitely tried to make all of my, you know, animal product choices with that kind of, you know, using my food dollar in that way to go towards local farmers and things like that, which is an amazing cause, right? But it does kind of mess with our heads in terms of like, believing that that meat is more nutritious for us. And if you actually look at it, it's it's mildly more nutritious, but you know, it's not really something to freak out over. And when I was newly pregnant with my first kid and having not experienced a pregnancy before, I actually let all that go out the window because I was like, you know what? Mama wants some meat. <laughs> and, you know, I I think that right now what's more important is my baby getting this protein and this iron that I'm craving and me not stressing out about, you know, was it a happy cow? I mean, I'm not saying that those aren't important issues, mm-hmm. but when we get really tied up in the personal responsibility element of it at the expense of our own health, it gets really sticky. So, yeah. No, <laughs> and, I- and honestly, that was that was 5 years ago and I, you know, I I choose sustainable meat when I can when I can put my food dollar towards it, but I I have not gone back to the mentality of, you know, it's it's somehow terrible to put, uh, you know, factory farmed meat in my body. Right. There might be repercussions of that farming system in general, but that doesn't have to do with what's going in my body. And if I am in a restaurant and, you know, something is sounding good, I feel like it is better for me psychologically to order what I want and then use my food dollars, you know, when I go grocery shopping. Yeah. Oh, there's, and there's tons of ways to support. I mean, environmental causes or, you know, and that, and then you're, if you're not stressed out about or feeling bad about the fact that you ate this, you know, maybe not perfectly sustainable meat, you know, quote unquote, you know, then you have the brain space to focus on your energy on other things that actually matter instead of kind of perseverating over, well, did I make the best choice that I possibly could have made? And am I a bad person for, you know, not 
having, you know, for, for me, it's like, you know, I don't always have the time on Saturday mornings to go to the farmer's market or like, you know, it's just not possible. And if the choice is between, you know, between, you know, grocery, something I can get at the grocery store or like, you know, pushing myself outside of my, you know, time limits to go and get and or my budgetary limits to go get something that maybe maybe slightly more nutritious, or slightly more sustainable, like, you know, it's kind of half a dozen and one, you know, six in the other. Exactly. And wait until there's a little baby in the mix. Mm-hmm. and Your time is even more valuable. You know, it's it's a balance. But your mental health in that uh, particular equation is uh, a really important part of it. Because whether or not the carrots have extra vitamin A, yes. <laughs> I don't even know if that's true. But right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that could be that like, you know, from one farm to the next, they're going to be, you know, yeah, slightly different, but like nothing. That's a thing like, you know, fresh frozen can like, you know, the difference is so minute in terms of produce, for example, that it's really not worth stressing over in my in my view. Yeah, definitely. I found I'm just thinking back to when my first kid was, you know, maybe one years old and starting solids. Oh man, I relied on frozen vegetables so much and she loved them. Like, you know, they're, they're uh, feeding, you know, a, a baby like that, that frozen is generally a little bit mushier. And like one time I was cleaning out the freezer and uh, looking for something and I ended up putting a bag of frozen broccoli on the floor and she picked it up and, you know, cause it has the pictures of the broccoli on it. And she was like, putting her mouth on it, like trying to get this frozen broccoli. <laughs> and like, it was really reassuring to me that like, you know, I, I've somehow managed to raise a one-year-old who enjoys broccoli to the degree that she will like try to eat a bag of frozen broccoli without even opening it. <laughs> trying to gnaw through the plastic. Yeah, yeah exactly. I had to like, I, I wasn't, pl- whatever I was doing at the time, I wasn't planning on microwaving some broccoli, and I, but I felt so bad. I was like, okay, here we go. <laughs> like you thought you were going to get broccoli. So here it is. But and, and honestly, like I, I don't think I bought. I'm just thinking about broccoli. I don't think I bought fresh broccoli for years. You know, just because she liked the frozen, and it was so easy to just make sure I always had it on hand. And so, if that's a habit that um, appeals to you, for one, you know, if you like frozen broccoli or whatever frozen that we're talking about, then there's no reason during pregnancy to not, you know, sort of jump on that train. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So you were also telling me a little bit about some of the messages that you're getting from uh, your healthcare practitioners. How have you been navigating some of that? So yeah, it's it's been it's been I've had a come maybe a couple hiccups with regards to my relationship with food. So let me back up a little bit and just explain a little bit more about intuitive eating because we've mentioned it a couple times now. So the ability to eat intuitively is something that all humans are born with the capacity of doing. So it's this idea that we have the ability to naturally self-regulate both our intake and, and we are more inclined to choose foods that our body needs at a certain time. So I think of a baby when they're, you know, first born and whether it's breastfed or bottle fed, they will cry out when they're hungry and then they'll like push the breast or the bottle away when they're, when, when they've had enough. And that's kind of, you know, a perfect example of our ability to self-regulate. And I think, you know, that's kind of one of the things that we dig into on my podcast, Food Confidence, is that that gets kind of like corrupted over time because we get all these messages about what we should be eating, what we shouldn't be eating. You know, kids are sometimes really pushed hard to eat veggies and fruit and, you know, different things. And there's maybe some fear introduced around sugary foods or quote unquote junk foods or whatever the case is. And then as we get older, you know, it's very common for people to go on 
diets of one kind or another, whether it's, you know, a, you know, Atkins or Whole30 or whatever it is, or if it's just kind of removing certain things potentially unnecessarily from their diet. So just kind of a, a restrictive kind of way of eating or a very cautious, careful way of eating. So intuitive eating is, again, something that we all have the ability to do, but that kind of over time, our relationship with food gets a little bit skewed, let's say. It, really, in my practice, I'm trying to help and guide people back towards this intuitive state where they're honoring their hunger and respecting their fullness and trying to undo or unlearn some of those messages that we get from culture, right? So the idea is that you know all foods are good foods and all foods can fit. And that can be, you know, it can be a long process for a lot of people. But basically that's kind of the gist of intuitive eating. I'm just finishing up a certification on intuitive eating, which is done with the two authors who are both dietitians, hooray for dietitians, Elise Resch and Evelyn Tribbley, and they wrote the book on intuitive eating like back in 1995. So maybe that's something that could just be, you know, we'll toss that in, you'll toss it in the show notes or something. Yeah, I definitely will. And I'm, I actually just started their certification myself. So oh, fun. okay, finish that in a few months. Awesome. I wouldn't necessarily say that I've always been an intuitive eater, but I think I've been very, very fortunate in my relationship with food. I didn't get a lot of messages growing up that, you know, what I was eating was bad or there wasn't any really foods off limits. So I've been very fortunate in that regard. Certainly, you know, with my dietetics education, those messages of like good and bad foods have crept in over time. And, and, you know, there's certainly been some times in my life where I was probably like, you know, watching what I was eating or I don't, I don't, don't think I ever like cut anything out particularly, but like certainly the morality around like if you're a good person and if you want to be a good dietitian, then you need to be eating a certain way. So yeah, I'm very lucky, like I said before that and very glad that I found intuitive eating before I got pregnant. I do think that if that had been the case, I probably would have been more stressed out, especially in those first few months where I was not craving any vegetables or any whole grains. Like I really just wanted crackers and cheese and yogurt. And that was, you know, that was pretty much the, the end of it. So my experience with healthcare providers to this point, you know, one thing that comes to mind is a recent experience with one of my midwives. So, uh, you know, I have at a practice that has multiple practitioners and you kind of rotate through them as you do, I think in a lot of prenatal care practices, you know, so that you actually know the person who's going to be delivering your child when the time comes. And I would had just been chatting or telling her that I was craving a lot of cold fruit. I mean, we're in the middle of a cold winter here in Maine. So it's not like it's hot, hot summer. And I just want like cold watermelon or something like that. But for some reason was a go to food. And, and I had mentioned that, you know, pineapple, I was really enjoying like strawberries and pineapple. And she kind of went, well, wait, wait, like pineapples are really high sugar fruit. And, you know, as a pregnant, as a pregnant woman, you're already insulin resistant. You know, that's, which I, to be honest, I didn't know that that was like part of pregnancy, but that you're just automatically insulin resistant. And I have not had my, my diabetes test at this point, my GDM or gestational diabetes test. So, I mean, again, you don't know <laughs> yeah. what really is going on in your, yeah. and your- I think what she probably meant is you are more predisposed to be insulin 
resistant if that is which is why we did the test right right that's not yeah. what she said though that she said that I was I she said that I was insulin resistant already and I was like oh, okay so you know she was kind of warning me against not having too much high sugar fruit and it was just kind of like why are you discouraging me from eating fruit it, like you didn't ask how much fruit I was eating or how much pineapple and you know I think it's really important that I trust my body, that everyone kind of trusts their bodies to be able to kind of process whatever, you know, to be able to utilize and process whatever they're eating. And that had been my experience up to that point. And I, you know, I still feel like that. But even as somebody who felt, who feels very secure in their relationship with food, you know, you're in this very vulnerable state as a pregnant person. And suddenly these like, you know, thoughts kind of started to appear at the back of my mind, like, am I putting my baby at risk? Like, you know, this also, I think the impending diabetes test, which is coming up in a few, like next week, I think, is is there. And in speaking to some other friends who have gone through pregnancy, like that is in a, a bit of an anxiety inducing thing that you're doing this test. And if it if you don't pass, <laughs> pass the test, then things, things are going to have to change. Yeah, I hate the the way it's framed as like, oh, I flunked my gestational diabetes test, like as if you could have studied harder, right, and done better. It's just like, you didn't flunk it, your body is just more predisposed to being insulin resistant when you are pregnant. But it, there's not something that you could have done better, but we frame it that way. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So yeah, that I mean, those kinds of like, doubtful thoughts started kind of creeping into my mind. And every time I would go, you know, to the cabinet and to get a snack or something like that, you know, that kind of thought of like, should I be having something, you know, should I be having this dessert or should I be having something more protein rich and not carbohydrate rich? And how can I balance this out with, you know, a, another food so that it's not all carbohydrates that I'm, I'm getting at this particular snack. And I think, you know, to a certain extent, you know, having I counsel a lot of people on like, you know, when we're having snacks, it's really, you know, it, most of the time it's very satisfying to have like a carbohydrate and a protein together. Like that's kind of like the combination that helps us sustain our energy and gives the snack staying power. So like that's not something that I'm disparaging that kind of carbohydrate protein combination, but the it was the thoughts that kind of precipitated those choices, right? That am I putting my baby at risk by having, you know, cookies for a snack instead of, I don't know, yogurt or, or something, something else. The way that you just said that, am I putting my baby at risk as if one snack of cookies is gonna <laughs> like do what? <laughs> like, right. maybe, maybe if you were on the borderline of, of having gestational diabetes or not, but in any case, if you're that, if you're that borderline, then you should know and you should be getting treatment for it accordingly. You know, right. we wouldn't want to just barely skirt through the, the diabetes tests and, quote unquote, pass, when it might have actually been more beneficial for you to, quote unquote, fail, because then you'd be getting treatment. And that would right. be best for your baby. That's a whole other issue. But uh, yeah. what, what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, in your case, it was a practitioner told you to watch out for pineapple. And I think that if you weren't a dietitian, you might be, oh, okay, I guess, I guess, you know, I can, I shouldn't have pineapple, I can have cookies, because she didn't say anything about cookies. But you know, pineapple is out. And, you know, I've heard similar cases where, you know, a, a slightly misinformed practitioner tells a woman, you know, to be cautious with her fish intake. And then all of a sudden she 
starts thinking that you shouldn't have fish during pregnancy at all, right? When we actually know that certain types of fish are very beneficial during pregnancy. And I think one degree of it is that pregnant women who don't have gestational diabetes do not regularly see dietitians who can help them, you know, uh, it's not part of their routine prenatal care to help them mm. navigate these messages. So the messages about food that they are getting are coming from whichever healthcare practitioners they're working with, who just may, may or may not, you know, have a good uh, point of reference for this kind of stuff. Plenty of them do. I'm not saying that if you're not a dietitian, you don't have a good point of reference for, you know, counseling a pregnant woman on what to eat. But, you know, those practitioners are subject to the same media messages that we are. And, you know, if they don't have the context of understanding, you know, this message of all foods fit and, you know, listening to your body and what it needs and not making foods off limit in order to ultimately promote our health, then, you know, the woman who receives that message is going to likely internalize it in a way that, you know, it's, if you never have pineapple, like, okay, your baby probably wouldn't change anything, but what does it do to you and your thought process? And, you know, once you start, when that kid starts solids, are you going to be letting the kid have pineapple or does it have too much sugar? And it's, it's, it's tough waters to navigate, I think. Yeah, definitely. You know, this practitioner had the best intentions, but you know, I just felt like I am in this vulnerable state. And this person has kind of indicated that, you know, there could be potentially something wrong, you know, I, I might be insulin resistant, and that I should really be, you know, not eating a lot of carbohydrates or sweet foods. And, you know, I just think about the people that I've worked with who have been pregnant or not, who would be so even more vulnerable to those kinds of messages from a healthcare practitioner, pregnant or not, like you said, and would probably unnecessarily stress themselves out and restrict and yeah, just, it wouldn't be a good, good situation. I also think for me, for me, at least there's a chapter, there's a part of the intuitive eating book about shutting down the food police. So there's this one voice called the diet rebel who is not an intuitive eating voice. That's the voice that kind of says, well, to heck with you, like, I'm going to do what I want. And I notice that thing coming out a lot more, like kind of like fighting back against that advice that I had been getting, like, well, to heck with you, like, I know, you know, I'm going to eat even more carbohydrate foods now. So yeah, again, very grateful that I have kind of that baseline of, of knowledge and, intu and the ability to eat intuitively so that I could notice those things coming up. But still, like, no, there was certainly like, well, I'm not going to listen to this yeah. provider with her, you know. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm trying to think of what the solution could be to um, any woman who's listening to this, who is receiving some of those messages, you know, even one session with an intuitive eating dietitian could be helpful in uh, helping you navigate some of these messages and even, you know, setting yourself up once you start feeding your kids and wanting them to have a healthy relationship with food. You know, it's just one, it's one more area we all, you know, could probably, I mean, you and I are both dietitians and we could benefit from this, right? So. Right. <laughs> just one more area. And I, I always hate to sort of be making a laundry list of things that, women and especially new moms like should do. But I'm just throwing it out there that if you are confused about this kind of stuff, this podcast is for educational purposes only. <laughs> and it might benefit you to just, you know, 
ask all your questions to someone who, so I'll put, I'll put um, some links to certainly how to, you know, work with us, but, you know, just to find someone in your area who, who could help you out with this kind of uh, stuff. If you do have questions, because, you know, I just, my reason in doing this podcast is to help women navigate these kinds of messages and choices. And I wish I could just give anyone listening like a, a neat little like, so here's how to make the choice. And I, I don't have that on top. It's very dependent on your situation and your own history with food. I would agree. It, does, it is so dependent. And I, I've seen a couple new moms in my practice. And from my experience, like it's just that desire for more support and reassurance that they are on the quote unquote right track that they are doing well and they're not missing. There's not any like gaping holes in their child's nutrition. So that's kind of been my experience is that they benefit from that reassurance and that support. And I think that goes beyond food. I mean, new parents need a lot of support from what I've, <laughs> what I'm imagining. So That's exactly what I was about to say. Yeah. I've definitely experienced the same with the moms that I work with, but you know, support and just conversations and companionship, you know, is something that every new mom is going to benefit from. Hopefully it's yeah. from people you have in your life, but in certain circumstances, you know, I'm thinking about the, the interview I aired with Mandy Major, who is a postpartum doula, and she's someone whose services you hire for, but you know, the, the, Potential benefits of having that person to talk to about your, you know, your postpartum experience are just, you know, I mean, it's, it's well documented actually that having a postpartum doula can help you have a more positive postpartum experience. I don't think we're going to see that kind of research with pregnancy and postpartum dietitians anytime soon, but anecdotally, anecdotally, right? So yeah, this has been a really great conversation, Andrea. Do you have anything else you, you want to add about your experience with food in your pregnancy or any, any tips you want to share to anyone who might be in the same situation? Oh, goodness. I mean, just from my experience surrounding yourself, like I, I, like I said, I've been fortunate to have some close friends who have been pregnant in the last couple of years that have kind of like passed along their knowledge. And then as more of my friends get pregnant, I kind of like gather that knowledge and like I provided a list of like, this is the list of foods that have been helpful to myself and other people in their like early stages of nausea and like kind of just like gather this list and pass it on. So I feel like the whole it takes a village begins like in pregnancy, right? So and then just, you know, having a group of supportive people around you that, you know, are going to reassure you that like all of the, the anxieties and, and worries of being pregnant are very normal. Like that's kind of one line that I've used, like whatever you're feeling is totally normal and it's totally okay. And it's totally okay to seek help for it because we shouldn't Absolutely. feel that it's normal. Therefore we should just figure out how to deal with it on our own. Good point. Very, yes. Point well taken. So yeah, I just, I wish that, you know, if you are going through a, a pregnancy experience, a pregnancy journey, that you have that kind of support. And I would hope also that the choices that you make around food and eating are coming from a place of self-care and, you know, not of stress and, and worry about, you know, the minutia of what you're putting into your body. Because, you know, babies are very resilient. You know, I, I think of, I don't know, you see those shows about, you know, people who didn't even know they were pregnant at all. Like, you know, babies are resilient. Your body can handle what you're eating. It's going to make the best use of what you're eating. So just, you know, having that body trust and finding ways to support your, your growing and changing 
body and in whatever way that that plays out, I think is is important. Yeah, that's I, I took the words right out of my mouth. So, <laughs> Well, good luck to you, Andrea, with the rest of your pregnancy. Thank you so uh, much. You have a good experience either way with your gestational diabetes test coming up. A week from today. So yeah, yeah. I want to tell you good luck, but it's like, <laughs> it is what it is, right? I, I, yes, I, I hope you have a good experience. <laughs> I hope choking down the orange goo is yeah. not too painful, but you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so why don't you tell us where we can find you? All right. So you can find me on pretty much most social media platforms, although I'm not on TikTok or any of that new nonsense. But you can find me on Instagram at andreapaul.rd. I also have a professional Facebook page at the same name. So at andreapaul.rd. I'm on Twitter a little bit, but more just in a more just for rants. So you don't have to follow me there. <laughs> and then um, my website is andreapaul.rd.com. And you can find all the information about my practice and podcast on the website. Yes. And her podcast is called Food Confidence. And for anyone listening who is uh, raising kids or going to be raising kids, it is definitely worth a listen in terms of um, getting some great info about how to raise your kids to uh, be intuitive eaters and have healthy relationships with food. Thanks so much. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks so much for this conversation. Thanks so much for tuning into this interview. If you enjoyed the episode, I would love for you to join the Messy Intersection Facebook community where you can share the messages about nutrition and health that you received during your pregnancies or otherwise and learn more about navigating those messages and raising your kids to have a positive relationship with food. You know, I really loved how Andrea chatted about how her friends who had been pregnant before her shared their best advice for pregnancy with her. And now that she's been through it herself, she's looking forward to sharing what worked for her as well. And this Facebook group is definitely a place for those conversations. So I'd love for you to join us in creating a judgment-free space for moms. Just text hello to 405-407-MESS and I'll send an invite right to your phone. I'm also really excited to share that as soon as Andrea and I wrapped up that interview, we spent another 20 minutes recording the first half of another episode that I'll air soon that was designed to be one of those like expectation versus reality posts you might see on Instagram, you know, the kind where it's like, you know, the beautiful Pinterest project on one side and then the failed homemade version on the other or family photos where you're dreaming about everyone being beautiful and smiling and instead they're all in tears. <laughs> so um, being that Andrea and I recorded the expectation portion prior to COVID getting really serious in the U.S., I know that our reality conversation uh, hopefully won't be quite the equivalent of a failed Pinterest craft project, but will definitely be really insightful in terms of what it's like raising a baby in a pandemic these days. So tune in for that soon, and thanks as always for listening. If you might be headed back to your podcast player to play another show right now, I hope you'll take a quick second to rate and review this show because it really helps the show show up in search rankings, and of course, I just always love reading them. So thanks for that. And until next week, embrace the mess. Mm -hmm.